You know, when you're a tourist and you're going to, uh, you know, a foreign country, there is the nostalgic and romantic places to go visit. The picturesque places that you have to go if you go to certain places. If you're in Great Britain, you go to the castles, right? Um, If you're in Mexico, you try to make the Mayan ruins. Um, If you're in Rome, you want to see the Roman Colosseum. And uh, for us, when uh, we were as a family, and my dad was a missionary in Kenya, um, it was uh, going to... uh, kind of the Maasai warrior um, safari kind of thing. So you did safari and then uh, the Maasai tribe was there and they would, they would dance and they would sing and it was fun. You take pictures and you stand by these tall warriors and all these kind of fun things. It's like the, the picturesque thing to do. But then when I went to Kenya and uh, stayed with a, a native family, native Kenyan family, and then did the same tourist things, um, it kind of uh, peels back what really is going on in those places. Um, that the romanticism and the nostalgia of that is uh, not as what it was supposed to be. And uh, they start telling me what the Maasai are actually singing about and uh, saying. And uh, you realize it's a little disparaging towards Westerners. And uh, it's a little uh, graphic about what they're talking about. I'm not going to share it now, but I'll share it later if you really want to know. And I feel that that idea uh, of that romanticism and nostalgia of certain places or certain things uh, as an outsider uh, just is the same as the way we can look at this passage this morning. Psalm 23. You notice I picked the most famous one to be the last one we do. And, uh, you know, Psalm 23 is on napkins, you know, people put it on, you know, maybe on their wall or crochet Psalm 23 or, you know, everyone has it at, you know, a funeral service is Psalm 23, you know, Psalm 23 is just everywhere. It's just a part of our culture, Psalm 23, but it's nostalgic and romantic and we go, oh man, I walked through the valley, shout death. Yeah, it's, you know, that's just part of it, but really if we peel back the layers And we really see what Psalm 23 is saying. We might not be so happy about it. (laughs) We might shock us a little more than we realize. As we've seen, the other Psalms have shocked us in the honesty and the emotionalness of the Psalms. This one will shock us too. And this great metaphor that David uses in calling us sheep should make us go, whoa. And my hope is that when we peel back the layers of Psalm 23, we'd have a deeper appreciation of this psalm, of the psalmist David, and ultimately a deeper appreciation of God as our shepherd. So let us look afresh at Psalm 23. And let's pay attention as we read it. Again, maybe you can pick something up new as we read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, if there are distractions right now in our lives, I pray that we would just give them to you and that you would take them. That we can be able to pay attention to your word. That there's objections towards you, God, that we would be able to doubt them and look at them afresh. And that we would be able to live this psalm in our lives. We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, we have gone through the book of Psalms. We've just hit a few of them this summer. And this will be our last sermon in the book of Psalms before we move into the book of 1 Samuel for the fall. And as we've said, the book of Psalms is uh, it's a song book of Israel. It's their hymn book. It's uh, what they use for worship. It's uh, what they would use either personally or corporately to praise the Lord. And we see that these psalms have many different varieties and styles from laments to praises to thanksgivings. And we see that these songs that are sung, um, they're passionate. And uh, each one kind of has a unique voice. I find this interesting, when people write songs and and sing songs, part of the reason that we love the song that is being sung is the way that it's delivered, the passion that's behind the person delivering it. Or the unique voice that the person has that's infectious. I'm a kind of person that likes rock music, and I, I think there's only certain people that can sing certain songs well, and it only works with that person. So Mick Jagger, I I can't see anyone else saying, I can't get no satisfaction. It's got to be from Mick Jagger, right? Or if I hear Under Pressure, you know, I I want it to be Freddie Mercury singing Under Pressure because he's just so unique and passionate. Or when I hear Better Man, I want Eddie Vedder singing that song, you know? And when it comes from these people, their lyrics, their music, it's just, it's infectious, And it's powerful. And here in the Psalms, we get that infectious emotion too. And we've seen that. We've seen joy. We've seen anger. We've seen frustration. We've seen doubt. We've seen gratefulness. And it comes out, like I said, in in praises and laments and in thanksgivings. And one of the greatest Psalms that people know is right here from the Psalm of David. And we get these emotions. But here's the problem in hearing these kind of singers sing songs or David sing this song is that we see the finished product, don't we? We see the poetry that they've written from their life experience. But we don't always see the problems that they went through, the issues that they faced, All that got them to the place to sing that song with the kind of passion that they have, with kind of the lyrics that they write. Uh, We're going to get that when we go to 1 Samuel. It'll be great. We'll read about what David experienced and what he went, went through. The thing is, we just get a glimpse. But what I like about Psalm 23 is this. We actually get some of the experience of David as a shepherd. And we also get elements of a full scope of life, of praise, 
lament, and thanksgiving. All these things are put together in this psalm. That's why I like to do it at the very end. And it combines the ups and downs that have culminated in David's life into what I want to call a psalm of trust or a psalm of confidence. This is a psalm that is being sung by David. And here David is wrestling with the great things that the psalms do. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. The psalms are a kind of pleading back and forth with God, whether he is faithful or not. God, do you really care for your people? Are you really faithful? And the key word is your covenant. Is your promise for us or not? And that's what the psalmists are wrestling with. And here David is saying clearly, confidently, yes, Yahweh, you are true. You are faithful. And I'm going to explain it from a very personal metaphor that's quantifiable for the people of Israel. And I'm not going to just talk it corporately. I'm going to talk it personally. My shepherd. So here is this personal psalm. Let's look at it. Let's unpack it. First, we see the Lord is my shepherd. Again, it makes sense that David would communicate this. One, um, it is a herding culture, the Israelites are. The Hebrews have a shepherding culture. Many of them are shepherds that are in high plains and in mountain regions where sheep were prevalent. And also it has a history of the patriarchs, the leaders of Israel also were a part of that. And then David specifically was a shepherd. But the thing is, David shocks us, even in using this kind of metaphor. In saying the Lord is my shepherd, this king of Israel, the one that sits on the throne, King David, the one is powerful over all these people, yes, that used to be a shepherd, is now communicating by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. What is David saying about himself? I am a sheep. The king is saying, I'm a sheep. Now, we can say sheep, they're so cute, you know. They're adorable, you know. They're content animals, you know. We look at them from afar, but they are not. They are stupid, okay? Recently, there was a story that in Turkey, um, 400 sheep went off a cliff and died in a ravine, just off the cliff into a ravine, following each other. But the story gets even better that 1,100 sheep lived um, after those 400 went down because they followed them, 1,100 more, and landed on the 400 dead sheep and lived. So 1,500 sheep just off a cliff. And the shepherds were neglecting. They were just eating breakfast at that time. But all said and done, $74,000 worth of sheep gone off a cliff. See, David understood that it takes constant care for sheep. David knew firsthand that for a sheep to lie down, 
For a sheep not to want takes work, and it takes much effort. Phil Keller, who um, was an agricultural researcher and a professor uh, that lived in British Columbia, said uh, when he retired, I'm going to try my hand at being a shepherd and raising sheep. And he wrote a book on uh, being a shepherd. And he found this, that uh, the thing in the Psalms that says, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Phil Keller said this, that it takes so much work for a sheep to just lie down. The food has to be okay. The pasture has to be okay. There has to be no predators. There has to be good relationships between the sheep. If all these variables are not there, they're not going to lie down. He tells a story how a friend came to visit him in the country in British Columbia and brought her little toy dog. And this little toy dog gets out of the car and the sheep see the toy dog and 400 of his sheep all get up and run to the far part of the field. 400 of them and just sit there anxiously standing up as this little toy dog is there. And he used to say, Phil Coe said, no one can bring their dogs anymore out there. But the point is that these sheep are just timid. They need care. They're anxious. They're worried. And that is what David is saying. I am a sheep. And he, then he's communicating, again, like all Psalms do to us, you are sheep. You are needy. You are skittish. Because I love this. When I'm, you know, Aaron loves it too. When I'm singing songs in the car, you know, and with my bad voice, and I don't really know the lyrics that I'm singing. And then she realized, she says, do you realize what you are actually singing and this song is talking about? You know, like, I'm a genie in a bottle, baby. You know, I'm just like, do you realize what you're saying when you're singing that song by Christina Aguilera? Do you understand what you are singing when you say Psalm 23? Do you realize that you are saying, I am a stupid sheep. I am needy. I would run off a cliff. I would shake in the corner. I would go in brambles. I am needy and I need a shepherd. And the lyrics get better, don't they? Here it says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, either Ezekiel is, the book of Ezekiel is borrowing from this or, um, uh, you know, Psalm is borrowing, borrowing from Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel, it talks about bad shepherds and how these shepherds neglected the sheep. And then again, it makes this metaphor of God as the good shepherd. And it says in that Ezekiel, it says, I did not save you, Israel, for you, but I saved you, Israel, for my name, for my glory. God is saying, I don't make you lie down and enjoy and have comfort for you. I make you lie down so that my name would be glorious. So I would be praised. So that I would be honored. It is showing the goodness of the shepherd. I'm sorry, in our culture where I get things myself, 
where I don't need anyone else to guide me, these kind of lyrics better smack right against us. Really? That's what God says about us? You know, there was someone else that needed a shepherd and didn't see that he needed that shepherd. This person's name was uh, Buzz Lightyear. You know, you know Buzz Lightyear? You know, Buzz in Toy Story, when he arrived at the home and got out of the box, he thought he could fly, right? He thought his little red light was an actual laser. He thought he was fighting Zerg in this different place. And as much as, um, you know, Woody and the other toys tried to explain to Buzz, Buzz, that's not really true. You live in this different world. You are a toy. And Buzz just wouldn't hear it, Woody. And uh, Woody is, you know, just constantly annoyed at this. And of course, they go on these adventures. And Woody's trying to, again, again and again, try to explain, Buzz, no, no. But then there's this part in the movie Toy Story where uh, Buzz sees a commercial, right? About the Buzz Lightyear toy action figure. And then he realizes, wait a second, I'm a toy. And he is down. He is not doing well. And this is where Woody could pounce, right? This is where Woody could just go, Buzz, I told you so. But what does Woody say? So good. Toy Story, right? The gospel in Toy Story. You must not be thinking clearly. Look over in that house. There's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. And then what does Woody do? He picks up his boot and he shows on the bottom of his boot the name, Andy. And says, Buzz, that same name is there for you. It is on you. And David is saying the same thing to us. You are cared for, not because of what you do, not because of a riot, because his name, the shepherd, is written on your heart. Aaron and I sent uh, two uh, ladies that have helped us over the years off to college. We had a party at our house and just celebrated all they had done for us and sending them off. And I'm reminded as, uh, you know, a senior in high school and you're going off to college, uh, being that 18-year-old, man, I had figured it all out. I was unique. I was different. I was going to show the world something. And that's, that's kind of all 18-year-olds. Like, I, man, I am something special. I have figured out the world. But something happens when you go to college and go off that you realize that you're no longer this big fish in a small pound, but you're a small fish in a big pond. And then you find out that uh, the talents and the uniqueness, whether how your hairstyle, your thinking, or the things that you're good at, you're not as good as some other people. And your cool differences in being out of the status quo. Wait, I'm not as out of the status quo as I thought. 
I'm glad that only happens to 18-year-olds, right? I'm glad as adults, we don't think things like that. Like, oh man, I figured it out more than other people. You know, these things in my life show that I'm unique and that I'm different. Oh, these accomplishments make me the person that's okay. And I'm reminded in this psalm, and I'm reminded what Augustine says. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. King David, who is unique, who is different, who has been anointed by oil to be the chosen one and separate as the king. He says, no earthly throne, no stage, no podium, no salary will make me find rest because I am a sheep that needs a shepherd. That is where I find rest. Even the king of Israel says, I need a shepherd. Well, then the psalm kind of goes on in talking into, from praise to lament. And he says, you know, you have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And verse 3, it says before, he restores my soul. Well, one, the idea of restoration, that uh, he is the one that saves us from uh, bad places, whether it's our lives as um, soul can uh, portray, or it can be salvation in the sense of our spirit being converted The idea of restore is fit throughout the Psalms. The idea of being cast down, being separate, all those kind of things throughout the laments of the Psalms. And in fact, the idea of being cast down is a shepherd term. Being cast down is when a sheep would um, kind of roll over and uh, then be stuck on its back and it can't get back up. And it's on its back and it's just bleeding and it's like, oh, what am I going to do? And if you leave a sheep there for an extended period of time, they'll die from that. Uh, Not just, uh, you know, a long time, just a little bit of time because the way that their physical makeup is, it can readjust things and cause them to suffocate and to die. And Phil Keller tells, you know, When a sheep is cast down, what the shepherd would do is, you know, they would constantly have to be on watch for this happening, especially the fat sheep. They seem to roll over quite a bit. And so the shepherd would come over and he would pick the sheep back up. And um, the thing is, if you just let the sheep go, right after you pick them up, they would fall again and do the same thing. So a shepherd would kind of straddle the sheep and start rubbing its legs just rubbing its legs until it got the blood moving again and then let the sheep go. And that is the restoration of the shepherd. That is what God is doing. That's what David is picturing. A cast down sheep that God takes and puts back up. And sometimes what the shepherd will do is that to get to greener pastures, especially in the summertime, the shepherd would go up into the hill country and into the mountains where the greener grass was. And it was a treacherous journey. Many times there was 
places that were cliffs and they had to be watched. And the shepherd would leave their home and live with the sheep in this summer place for an extended period of time. Again, when David was being sought out because he was away from his brothers, that's what David was doing. He was out with his sheep away from the home in the summer place where the sheep needed to be. And that is what it's saying here, that even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You travel with me. You are with me in this place. And then your rod and your staff are with. So one, the rod to guard against predators, the staff to guide me in the right places. Again, David, when we read this, we don't realize the experiences of David. David ran from Saul, did he not? In mountains, in caves. He, his life was threatened. And he called out to God. And I think he's saying here, you were with me. Even in that dark place, even when I was away from home, you were with me. In laments, which is so good, I hope you get this in the Psalms. We are all sometimes in periods of laments. And the laments in Psalm are so good because they are honest about doubts. They are honest about injustice. They're honest about pain. And the psalmists cry out to God. And I encourage you, when you have... And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If you feel like you have nowhere to go, I have nothing to say. I don't know what to pray. Go to the Psalms and lament like the psalmists do. And you will see that, God, are you with me? And the psalmists say, even in these dark places, I knew you are with me. You guided me. You helped me. And really lament And being able to cry out to God in those places makes us see his presence evermore. And many times, the lament times in life can draw us closer to the presence of God than we have ever been before. And David is saying, yes, that is true. That is what happens. Listen, you know, I'm a preacher, right? So I'm up here talking passionately, emotionally, and all those things. And uh, some of you might have logical arguments with these ideas. And I understand that. And I just want to go through a quick um, kind of objection that I've heard from people here in the church and from people that you know. If God is the good shepherd, if he created all things, and if he loves me, why do such things happen to me? Why is evil here? Why is there pain? Why do I have to go through this? Kind of, I know this is a quick philosophy thing, but I can go through it quickly and try to explain it clearly. Well, one is, I I don't think God is the author of evil. Okay? I agree with Augustine and Aquinas and the arguments that say this, that evil is the tainting of the good. It is taking what God has created and then using it in the wrong way or making it an ultimate thing instead of God the ultimate thing. Example, sex. Sex is a wonderful thing. 
But some of the greatest issues and problems we have in our world revolve around sex, do they not? When it comes to abuse, when it comes to doing it in inappropriate times, whatever it might be. See, sex, God created for good. And what evil is, is taking the good and then tainting it. Further, they would say that evil is something that uh, is the absence of the good. Example, you have an umbrella and uh, there's rain falling on you. And you realize the rain is falling on you because there's a hole in the umbrella. So the good is the umbrella. But the absence of the good, the hole, which we'll call evil, is what I see. Okay, that's one argument. Now, I get pushed back again and say, well, even if that is the case, then why would God allow such things to happen? Why doesn't he stop it? And I say to this that we are preparing for the best possible place, the best kingdom, to get to heaven To get to a full appreciation of the best world, we have to experience the second best possible world or the world that is now to get to there. So in order to appreciate heaven, to appreciate the feast to come, we have to live in this freedom. (laughs) We have to live in these problems. We have to live in this place so that when we get to the best possible world, we will then fully appreciate it because we are here. Now, many people say, well, there's tons of evil in this world. Well, my argument is it could be a lot worse. (laughs) This isn't the worst it could be. It's actually the best it can be until we get to the full kingdom. And in fact, we have to experience this now to understand the full plan of later. Okay, there are some philosophical arguments for the problem of evil. Some of you might not be convinced. That's okay. We can talk about it later. And some of you might say, those are trite answers for what I'm experiencing. That also makes sense. Because if I said to you, you know, there's a reason for what God is putting you through right now. You're saying, don't tell me that BS. Okay? Don't tell me that. Because right now, it's just painful. And I don't want to see it. And that is why I think the latter part of Psalm 23 is so rich. So please hear this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David moves from calling us sheep to calling us people at the feast, to being people that feast at this table, that we experience amazing things, this great thing that one, that all the things, the enemies and injustice, whatever it might be, is squashed. Also that we're at this table and we're anointed with oil, meaning that we have been chosen. And also the food is so good that the cup overflows in goodness. And then he uses the word, surely goodness and mercy, which is the word hased, his loving kindness, his covenant mercy that will not end. 
You know, I, I don't know about you, but maybe you've experienced those moments of a said, <laughs> of God's loving kindness. I find there are few and far between, but there are those moments. I was sharing with one person this week when it's after a race, and I've done all the work to finish the race, and I've strived and pained and exercised and did all these things, and the race is done. And whether I'm on the podium or maybe I'm just enjoying and basking, and I go, man, all that pain, all that I went through is worth it. Everything is right with the world. Or I'm at the cabin with my girls and I'm watching them play on the beach after maybe later earlier I had to discipline them or pack all the car up or whatever it might be. And I'm laying on the beach and I look at God's beauty and I look at my daughter playing and I go, everything is right in this world. What beauty you have given me, God. How amazing it is. Even when I have to go through the pain of disciplining my child. But I'm enough of a critic and I'm enough of a skeptic to in this moment I say, you know, these are just fleeting. (laughs) They won't last. I'll have to pack back up. I'll have to run again. I'll have to do whatever it might be. These are just fleeting moments. What assurance do I have? What assurance do I have, God, that I will dwell in your house, that goodness and mercy will follow me, that there will be goodness all of the days of my life? How do I know that you care for me? Please hear this. This is the great richness that shows me the truth of God in this psalm that makes it so good. That this psalm was written 800 years before This other man came and sat down. And you know what he said? I too am the good shepherd. I am the shepherd. I am God. And do you know how you can tell I'm the good shepherd? Because the good shepherd does what? He lays his life down for the sheep. David didn't even see that. He didn't even know that was going to happen. He had no idea that there would be a shepherd that would become God himself. And to show that he was the good shepherd, what would he do? He would say, behold, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, I am the good shepherd that goes so far to lay down my perfect life for you. You want assurance that the feast and the table is set for you? That all the days of your life, that you will dwell in his house, we have evidence of it, historical evidence, that God dwelt among us, that he came as Jesus Christ, the good shepherd that died upon the cross and rose from the dead. That is the good news. That even he became a sheep. (laughs) Even he became like us, weak, fragile, and took the pain of this world, the suffering and evil that we each face, he took it upon himself so that we would no longer have to.
Well, my hope is that you will look at Psalm 23 in a new way. That you would gladly say to your friends, to your wife, to whoever, I am a stupid sheep, but I have a good shepherd that laid his down his life for me, that I might dwell in the good pastures and in his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for emotional people like David. Thank you that they wrote out the pains of their life and they gave it to us so that we would read and know that we are not alone and that we would also read and know of your covenant faithfulness for us, that you have not forgotten us, that you love us, that you care for us, that your story is true. And one day, we will dwell with you in heaven. In your son's name, amen.